podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You are listening to the 4000 Holes Podcast. Brought to you by the people at brfcs.com and sponsored by the lovely people at the Terrace. Terrific servant for Blackburn down the years. goal-scoring record, which stood with Tommy Briggs, 140. It's my distinct pleasure tonight on the 4,000 Holes Roundtable podcast to welcome three guests, one of whom is a genuine Rovers legend. We'll come to him in a second. First of all, we've got Dan Clough. Dan, who will be known to many Rovers supporters, he used to have a column in the Lancashire Telegraph, but also, and this is really really poetic given that this is the 4,000 Holes podcast, he was the editor of the 4,000 Holes fanzine back in the day. So Dan, welcome to the podcast. Did you ever think back in those days that the fanzine would burst into this multimedia uh, impression. Oh, no, yeah. Um, it, it's funny, I, I started off by off, offering to help with design and then ended up being given the whole thing, which I didn't initially sign up for. But I think my, my first front cover of the fanzine I did was when Danny Murphy was saying that we were a rugby team or something. And then uh, did a few into the Venkis era. And then, yeah, handed it over to Scott, who was a grand job now. But I think the birth of Social media and everything is taking it to new levels, so it's great to see um, to see it doing this. Yeah, we're we're squaring the circle by bringing you back then now, see, and having you on the podcast as well. So so welcome. We'll talk more about your contribution in a second. I'm going to introduce my uh, second guest now. It's Richard Slater. Richard, you collaborated with Simon on his first book. There's only one Simon Garner, and you're involved in this one. In what capacity? Would you like to tell our listeners? Yeah, in this in this capacity, I'm going to be publishing this book since since we did the first one, which I think was in 2001 ish. At that time, I was I was I'd recently or five years previous, I'd left the Evening Telegraph, and I was at that time writing freelance football reports and, and football features for a couple of nationals. So, and at that time, I was just starting my business when when I first met with Simon. So, cast forward. 20 and a bit years yeah you know I'm delighted that we're going to be able to do this all again but in a bigger way and a a more expansive way with a lot more stories and a lot more contributors to the book and I I have to say it's been a delight working with Dan he's been absolutely supremely brilliant and patient and endeavorous is that a word if it isn't might have that so it's been really good so yeah, so I'm chuffed to bits. It's 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 been a it's been a really good team effort with Dan and Simon and a, a couple of guys back at my office, particularly Olivia. And yeah, it's, it's, I'm looking forward to getting it out on the market. I'm looking forward to people reading it. I'm looking to put forward to what people say about it because last time we got we got a fantastic response. It was really genuinely touching and exciting the response that we got. And I just hope that we'll get the same again because actually I'll be cross if we don't because it's better than it was it's 300 and odd pages this time it's a proper fat old read is this Ian and and I'm, I'm sure your listeners will enjoy it you're, you're doing an excellent sales pitch there. We, we will give out a link, uh, obviously, during the episode, and we'll recap at the end as to where you can, you can buy this. But the man himself, it's a, a distinct pleasure to welcome to the 4000 Olds podcast, Blackburn Rovers all-time record goalscorer. Yes, there is only one Simon Garner. Simon, how are you this evening? 
I'm good, thank you. Are you? Uh, absolutely marvellous, mate. It's all the all the better for having you as a guest on the podcast. So uh, yeah. let, let's dive into this then. So you you wrote a book uh, twenty years ago now, is it? Near, nearest yeah, nearest down twenty years ago. I was um, I was in my old local pub one night. Two fellas said, "Why don't you write an autobiography and put me in touch with Richard?" And that's how it, that's how it went. And Richard wrote the first one. It took quite a while for us. We was on the phone for 45 minutes at a time. Then he'd have to type it and send it through to me. And if I needed alterations, I had to do all that. So it took a long time to do, but it was worth doing. And I really enjoyed it. So what was the catalyst for, for this one then? What what sparked the idea? Who's who's the uh, driving force behind this, shall we say? Well, it's got to be me, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> no, Reassuring, if I may say so. It was, I th- I, I believe it was Richard's idea. He said, let's do a 20th anniversary one. I mean, yeah. in my lifetime, I haven't been with anybody for 20 years. But uh, <laughs> with this one, I said, yeah, let, let's do it again and let's see what else we can do with it. I didn't want to bring out just the same book again. I don't want people to turn around and say, oh, yeah. that's the same book as before. It's a bit of a con job. It's nothing like that at all. As Richard said, Dan's done a great job on it and um, loads of extra pages and plenty of other people who actually talking well of me. They didn't at the time, some of them managers, but they have done, in, they have done what they've written in this one. So did that cost you a lot of money then in bribes with a lot of brown envelopes passing, <laughs> passing away? I think that that's one of the things that, that really comes out is the, the testimonials between each of the chapters uh, you know, covering your career and all the rest of it. And as you say, yeah, the lovely words that people and people say. There are, shall we say, some common themes that come through those testimonials. I'm sure we'll talk about it as we go through. Uh, you know, we're, let's just say finely tuned athlete was not a phrase that we, we saw used, I think, but uh, you certainly made up for it with your goal scoring. So, so Dan, once you, how did you get involved in this? How did you become the man that added these extra words to the second edition? Uh, well, it, it was, I was approached by Richard completely out of the blue. Um, we were in the middle of COVID. Stuck it on, so it sounded like something to keep you occupied. <laughs> yeah, and, and Richard suggested it as an idea, and we and, and it sounded good. And then I think we just had a, a get together, didn't we, the three of us, um, over Zoom, and, and see how what the chemistry was like. And we started with one chapter, didn't we? We, we looked at a chapter from the previous book, and then so we we, we basically went back to that, and it was the um, it, it was the Bobby Saxon era. We picked that one out of out of the hat. And, um, revisited it, had a good, good chat with Simon, um, expanded it, got some new stories in there, a bit more detail, and, uh, and, and it worked. So we, we thought, let's carry on, didn't we? I think when I look back, my first contact with you, Richard, was February 2021, so it's been a, a long old process. So it's all taken almost as long as the first one, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, let, let, let's delve into it. Let, let we'll, yeah, we'll do this in a very predictable fashion. We'll, yeah. we'll go through your life chronologically. Let's start off with, with young Simon. There, um, one story that comes out of the book. I have to say this. Um, and if there's any old black fellow old Blackburnians <laughs> listening to this episode of the podcast, there's a name that resonates in it from your school days, which is the the headmaster at Boston Grammar who came to Queen Elizabeth in Blackburn. He was my headmaster when I was at Queen Elizabeth. I think we share very similar views on him. Yeah. But when did did you when did you first become aware of football and and that desire and the hunger to actually play the game? What's your earliest memory of wanting to play football? All my life, I wanted to be a footballer. I'd be out every night from five, six years old, playing football outside my house. And we used to have a group of us who used to play football. And as you grew older and whatever, people said, "What are you going to do? What are you going to do as a job?" And I just said all the way through, "I want to be a footballer." If I hadn't become a footballer, I hadn't got a clue what I would have done. I'd have perhaps finishing up working at the factory where my dad worked. And that'd have been it, I think, because I'd know I was, even with Mr. Johnston as a headmaster, <laughs> Absolutely. I'd know I wasn't academic at all. Not at all. I, I think I passed one or two O-levels or something like that. But no, I had no idea, besides football, what I was going to do. You, you, say, you said that before, Simon, about you weren't academic. But you got into Boston Grammar. Oh, well, that was the 11 plus, and I'm not telling you who did it for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think statute of limitations is passed now. You're probably okay with that. Oh my god, Dan, Dan, this is the problem, isn't it? Every every time he opens his mouth, it's another bloody two paragraphs that's yeah, yeah, we need to get in the book now. No, I did pass it. I did pass it all, all by myself. It must whoever marked it must have felt sorry for me, something like that. Let's say that. But I did in Boston in them days where I came from the town. You either went to Kitwood Boys, which was a secondary school, or you went to the grammar school, and um, everybody wanted to go to the grammar school. So, like you say, you had to pass U11+. Plus. So, I did do a bit of work and fortunate to pass it because the facilities at the grammar school were a lot better. And you also you also were a swimmer. Right, well, it's another thing I used to do with my dad from when I was young. We used to go to the swimming baths every Sunday morning at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't just swimming up and down. I mean, I'd be diving in and messing about. And then when I went to the grammar school, they had a pool there. It wasn't very big. I mean, it was about two bath lengths, I think it was. And yeah, I used to do a bit of swimming. And all of a sudden, I got picked for the school team doing the butterfly. And I couldn't do the butterfly. So unfortunately, I dropped out that day because I was sick. Phoned me up at home and asked me where I was, why I wasn't at school. He got a very, um, I wouldn't like to say, polite reply from my father. He said something else my dad did. I mean, my dad, God bless him, he couldn't speak without swearing. And he actually wrote a letter to Mr Johnson. I think 90% of it was swear words in there. And um, I finished up getting the cane off that man. Well, there you go. Um, you, you, and some of my contemporaries at Queen Elizabeth as well. Anyway, let's let's move let's move the conversation back into football. So, you you were very determined. You had this vision that you were going to be a footballer. Who were your influences? Who encouraged you along the way? And who made the dream come true in those? Um, I would say all the way through, my dad encouraged me. Definitely. Um, at secondary school, I had a couple of sports teachers who encouraged me. I mean, I was playing for the sixth form team when I was in well, two years younger, so I'd be 14, 15, when I was playing in the under-18s at school, which the sports teachers were very good. They got me out of double history every Wednesday afternoon so I could play a game, and that's why I didn't pass my history O level. Um, but, uh, no, and I got and another fellow called John Blackwell, who was secretary at Boston United. Yeah. Uh, he, he had a pub team as well on a Sunday, and I was playing for his pub team, when I was about 16, 17, and he had contacts in the game and he got me trials at places. So I went around doing these trials, hoping I'd get an offer from somewhere. Unfortunately, I did. And who were our rivals then for your signature? Who else was in the hunt for the young Simon Garner? Well, I'd like to say Liverpool and Man United, but he was actually <laughs> Scunthorpe United. How did Rovers' interest first materialise? How did the contact from the club first arrive? Well, it was... Jim Smith was manager at Blackburn. He used to be manager at Boston United. John Blackburn knew him really well. John got me a trial up at Blackburn. Went for the trial. Thought I did all right. Uh, Jim turned around and said, right, you haven't been brilliant in your trial, but I'm going to take a gamble on you. And he signed me as an apprentice. So I think it was a touch of luck, a lucky break for me, that Jim offered me an apprenticeship. Yeah. What did the trial consist of? Were you just literally jumped chucked into games or were you up there for a few days and I was up there for a week so you're training every day you played a couple of games but it's mostly training and playing five sides and stuff like that or 11 sides and it was just all trialists and they used to pick out the best ones I mean most lads was there for a week and at the end of the week you was told whether right thanks a lot see ya or we would like you to stay for another week or whatever come back and have another trial and let's see where it goes from there. So you, you could start out with, I don't know, 20 or 30 kids. Yeah. And finish up with 15 kids. And then from that, I can't remember now how many you used to take on. I'm going to guess about eight apprentices got took on. And I've, I've been to a lot of trials before I went to Blackburn. And um, it was always the same thing. Thank you, but you're not quite good enough. But I just persevered. I just thought a chance would come somewhere, and that's what I relied on. And you would be, what, 16 years old then? 16 years old then, So when, yes. when you were yes. taking on then, that was meant leaving home, moving to Blackburn and all of that sort of stuff. How did the 16-year-old Simon Garner cope with all of that? It was a bit of a shock to start with, I must admit. 
We was put up in a house. I think there was about six of us sleeping in a terraced house. A woman used to come in and cook her meals. I mean, for me, I just enjoyed it. I just thought, right, I'm away from home. If I want to be a footballer, I'm going to be away from home. I'm going to have to live away from home. So I've just got to get on with it. And you have no time to think about it, that you're away. I mean, I used to speak to my parents every night. Um, this is in the days before mobiles. I'd be down the phone box uh, speaking to them and then nip to the pub and have a couple of beers <laughs> and then go back to There's the one of the themes speak. that we think will recur, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, you've got to be tough on yourself in a way. and You've just got to get down and get on with it. It's a job you want to do. So that's what I did. I just got my head down. Every trial I went to, I got my head down and just got on with it. Yeah. Now, Jim Smith didn't last very long at Rovers with you there. The bright lights of Birmingham lured him away. How how unsettling was that for you then when the guy that signed you left the club? Well, it wasn't really. I mean, I'd signed professional forms. Uh, Jim left. I'm trying to think who took over now. I can't really remember. There's that many, that many managers. I can't remember who took over from Jim. Jim Eiley, wasn't it, for a short period of time? Oh, it was Jim Eiley, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was a big shock. I mean, it went from knowing the manager to, well, it was the same for all the players in a way. A different manager came in, different tactics. And you just, again, you just had to get your head down and say, right, I'm on, I'm on to this. We get, it's a new manager. You've got to try and impress him. And you've got to try and get yourself in the first team or the first team squad. And you just get your head down. Well, that's what I did. I just got my head down and got on with it. Now, Rovers in um, January tried to sign a player and didn't get the forms into the league in time. One of the tales in the book is about you nearly making your debut, but not did, si- yeah. but not having the right forms. That's it. I mean, in my day, there's two sorts of forms. There's football league forms and there's FA forms. And I can't remember which way round it was, but the club, you couldn't play in the first team if you haven't signed both the forms, and I'd only signed one of the forms. And at the time, it cost the club £250 per form that they had to pay to the player, and £250 they had to pay to the scout who found you. So it's a total of £1,000 roughly to do two forms. And Jim was going to take me, it was away at Southampton, the last game of the season, nothing to play for. Jim was going to take me down there and he said, right, I'm putting you in the squad. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I can't. And he didn't know I signed both the forms. So I think the secretary got a bit of a telling off that day. It's good to know that some traditions in Rovers have been handed down from generation to generation, I will say. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> what goes around comes around, as you say. But eventually you made your debut. What was that like yeah. then? How excited were you? Very excited. Like I said, I always wanted to be a footballer. Uh, and your pinnacle is to make your debut and get into the first team. Um, not nervous, just excited. I was lucky that I never got nervous for a game. I, I wasn't one of them who'd be stomping around and biting the mouths and stuff like that. I just concentrated and got on with it. I, I, I was excited to play. I wasn't nervous to play. I always look forward to playing football, especially in the first team. And how much do you remember of your, your debut? Nothing. That's extraordinary. <laughs> um, no, I don't remember, especially as I'm getting older. I don't remember much about it at all. No, I don't. So what's what's your earliest memory of, of playing for Rovers? What, what's what's the first game that sticks out in your mind? Um, it's got to be when I first scored against Fulham in the first team. That, that would be the one. I think it was a Friday night. I'm not sure if it's on the telly or not. I don't think, but Fulham had to win to go top of the league. And we was not at the bottom, it was towards the bottom. And I remember scoring two goals in that game. So that's my first memory. I remember as clear as yesterday, Kevin Erd going down the right wing, crossing it in. I think the keeper had made a stupid mistake running out of the box. And I just had an open net to tap it in with. That was my first one. And the second one, it was a long ball over the top. I could have kept running with the ball. I was about 20 yards out. I could have kept going, but I thought, no, I can't run anymore. So I just smacked it in the top corner of the net. <laughs> I think you're right about it being on TV. I have a recollection that the highlights were on um, on the ball on the Saturday. Like um, because it was rare that Rovers would be, be on that programme. It was a very London-centric programme, but because you were playing Fulham, obviously. Uh, there, there, was a, there was a link there. 
Uh, and I remember seeing, you know, who's this, who's this young lad that's just scored two goals? I was like, hmm, oh, maybe we have to keep an eye on him kind of thing. Little did we know what was what was going to happen over over the coming years then. So you you you, you muscled your way into the first team. And yeah. Bobby Saxton, I think, is probably one of the, the, the more, most influential managers. That, that's the theme that comes out, out through the book. What was he like to play for and how did he bring out the best in you? He was great to play for. He said it as it was. Wasn't a great man with the press, but behind closed doors in the dressing room, he had a way of playing. He encouraged his players. He could tell them off what he needed to. Always encouraged me, always helped me, keep me behind after training, do shooting practice, things like that. But he was a down-to-earth man who knew football and he knew the way he wanted to play. In them days, the football club didn't have much money. We didn't have a massive squad. It's not like football nowadays where you can rotate players week in, week out. We had a squad of about, I'm going to say about 15 or 16 at the most. You always have a couple of injuries. So you're not guaranteed to play every week, but he had to make sure he got behind the players, even if they're having a bad time, and he supported them. And he, he was a great motivator, absolutely brilliant motivator. And um, I've never had a bad word to say about Bobby. I mean, he was a great manager. He's dropped me a couple of times and whatever, but I could understand his reasons why. And uh, to me, he's right up there with one of the best ones I've played with. Yeah, considering the budget he had, and as you say, that the financial dire straits that Rovers were in then, uh, much as they are these days, it would seem, again, what goes around comes around. He, he, he did work wonders. One of my favourite Rovers managers, Howard Kendall. But Howard tried to get rid of you. He tried to get rid of me to uh, Halifax, who were then in the non-league. I didn't want to go there, full stop. He was desperate to sign. I think it was a lad called John Duncan from Chesterfield, oh, a big yeah, centre yeah. forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He needed £30,000. He was going to get £30,000 from here, something like that. Um, I went and had the talks with Halifax, uh, sat in this, well, I won't even call it an office. It was a little room under the main stand. Manager just sold, tried to sell the football club to me. He's even going to offer me a, a sponsored car. I asked him what sort he was, and it was a Skoda. I thought, in them days, a Skoda was not a good car. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was desperate assignment. I turned him down, went back to see Howard, who was in the referee's room, which was the manager used to use to get changed in at, after training sessions. And he was in the bath in the restroom. And he said, is it all sorted? I said, yeah, it's sorted. I'm not going there. Um, to put it politely, he told me I'd never play for the club again. But um, it didn't work out like that. Thankfully, yes, thankfully for all of us, he was he was yeah. wrong. So how did how did you um, manage to get in the side then? How did how did you manage to win Howard over? I don't think I, I won him over. It was coming towards the end of the season. I think it was Noel Bulliston who got injured, and he looked round the rest of the dressing room. There was only me left. <laughs> Hobson's choice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. I was the only one left. The only forward player left, so um, he had to put me in the team. I think he didn't really want to, but he did put me in the side, and um, unfortunately, it didn't work out. Yeah, It was a, it was a, an amazing two years, uh, so, well, as a fan, uh, you know, clearly winning promotion and then almost carrying it straight through. And yeah. I, I can still remember to this day the emotions that we felt on the terraces at Eastville. Uh, yeah, the, the, there was a, there's an amazing photograph of Faz and Jack Cunningham walking towards. I think with Howard as well. Yeah, and Faz is virtually in tears, I and mean, you know it, it takes a lot to reduce Faz to tears. I think, but it was it was an incredibly emotional day. And then we had the joy of driving up the M6 and the M5 and the Swansea fans coming in the other direction. So I don't know what it was like for the players, but trust me, for the fans, it was it was pretty pretty grim, I have to say. But uh, yeah, so uh, you, yeah, you had your you, you had your your blossoming under um, under Bobby Saxton and all the rest of it. But the, a Scottish manager again, who I've a lot of time for, came into the club in Don Mackay. What was he like? In the dressing room, how did he galvanise the players? Well, I can, I can understand why you had a lot of time for him because you needed to have a lot of time because when he started talking, he never stopped. 
he just go on and on and on. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. He's been on the podcast as a guest. Uh, and Andy Bay's blessing from Radio Lancashire put me in touch with him. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll work out some questions. He said, oh, you don't need to work out any questions with John. Just say good morning. <laughs> that was That's it. He'll, he'll, he'll start talking in the morning and finish at night time. He used to be like that with his team meetings. He used to go on for hours. But no, he, he came in. He was, he was full of confidence in himself. Loved to hear himself talk. Yeah. Some of the times we'd be sat there and we'd have meetings for over an hour and he'd repeat the same thing after an hour that he said in the first five minutes. So he loved to hear his own voice, but he, he, um, he was a nice fella, don't get me wrong, a great fella. I wouldn't say the best manager I played under, nowhere near the best manager. He could motivate players. He wasn't brilliant at telling players off. I mean, he wasn't strict and stern like that. When he tried to be, the players just thought, yeah, okay, then Don, go on, on you go, on you go, and blah, yeah. blah. And after a few minutes after that, he, he, he just changed the subject and talked about something else. But he, a great personality for the fans and the, the public, I would say. Yeah. And especially for the press. I mean, before yeah. that, yeah. there hadn't been a lot of managers at that football club who, I wouldn't say got on with the press, but the, they weren't comfortable in front of the press. Whereas Don, all day long, you could sit in front of the press or anybody and talk and talk and talk. I mean, if he sat down with Dan and Richard of two art and autobiography, you're saying there's more pages in this one. It's a bit like an encyclopedia. <laughs> hey, I have to say, at that time, I mean, Ro Rovers were struggling. When, when Bobby was eventually um, let, let go, uh, uh, the, the 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 town didn't really have any faith in the club, and he came in and he was a breath of fresh air again to, to the supporters. As you sort yeah, of say, he, he had a very good re relationship with the press, uh, and he was quick to move in the transfer market and bring in some of his uh, using his Scottish contacts. And obviously, one of the players he brought in was was Colin Hendry. What was the young Colin Hendry like in that dressing room? Colin when we first came, he he was um, full of confidence. He was going to be a a top-class footballer, he, he was going to make it to the top. That's the way he used to act. That's the way he used to talk. He didn't come in as a shy lad. I mean, you sign players and they, they'll come in the dressing room and, hello, how are you? Nice to meet you and all that. But he, like, stormed through the door and, where am I getting changed? Hello, lads, you all all right? Come on, blah, blah. He was full of himself and um, it worked out for him. I mean, he turned out and played for some top clubs. He played for Scotland. And they did well for himself. But, uh, yeah, he was... There's a few of the experienced players when he first walked into the dressing room would look at him and go, who's this little upstart coming into the club here? We might have to bring him down a peg or two. <laughs> but he was just full of confidence. So that full members cup run obviously was epitomised by, by Colin scoring the winner. Um, that, that seemed to galvanise the club. And Don Mackay seemed to, to rally the supporters behind that. What was the mood in the dressing room? And when did you first think, crikey, we could get to Wembley for a cup final here? It, you know, it was hard, really, because uh, we didn't even think about it. And I don't think we even realised um, how close we were to getting there. And it just, the games kept coming and we kept winning games. And I don't think we ever talked about getting to Wembley. And uh, all of a sudden... As I remember it, we just, oh, hang on a minute. We're in the final of the Full Members Cup at Wembley. And that was it, because was, we was playing league games in between. And uh, not really, it's not the FA Cup, not being funny, it's not the FA Cup, yeah. it wasn't the League Cup. It was just this little Full Members Cup. But then we got there and we all went, oh, we're going to be playing at Wembley. It was a great thing. It was a great day out as well. We're still not happy with Ian Miller for not crossing it to me. <laughs> What were the post-match celebrations like, Simon? How did the, how did the squad celebrate? Uh, with a few bevies uh, and a few more. There's that theme again. <laughs> <laughs> you, had had a few, few um, you had a few ex uh, trips with Don, though, didn't you? You go away pre-season. And uh, again, in the book, there are mentions about trips to Sweden. And oh, we used to go to Sweden. And uh, first time we went to Sweden, we thought, oh, we're going to Sweden pre-season. thought, this is going to be good. I mean, before that... With Howard Kendall, we've been to Morecambe on a pre-season trip. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> so anyway, we went to Sweden. We thought, we're going to fly out to Sweden. We're going to be in a nice hotel and stuff like this. 
Little did we know we was going to be on a ferry for 24 hours, all crammed in one room. And then when we got there, we got dropped off at a block of flats. And it was like self-catering. There was no hotel at all. So um, a few of us just took it on ourselves to make sure that we um, we had enough to eat and enough to drink, and especially enough to drink. So we used to have a few beers. Yes. L- liquid lunch, liquid evening meal. It sounds like the Airbnb of its day without, without perhaps realising it. Who, who were the characters in that dressing room that you allied yourself to most of all? Who were the players you got oh, on? God, there's a few of us. I mean, um, it'd be easy to say the ones who weren't. I mean, Faz, Tony Parks, they were the more serious ones. I mean, the rest of us, we had a group of different ages, but the younger ones, we decided just to enjoy ourselves in Sweden, which we did. Yeah. I mean, you're playing games, you're not playing very good opposition. It'd be something like that. Oh, it'd perhaps be uh, the National League, teams like that, or National League South or National League North or whatever. It'd be teams like that. So we weren't fully prepared, let's say. And we didn't uh, <laughs> stick by the rules the night before the game that we wasn't allowed to have a drink. So there's quite a few of us. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, I think one of the differences between the, the modern game and and certainly back in the yeah, the late eighties, the early nineties is is that that sort of culture. Although having said that, you know you still hear tales, don't you, about Leicester City going to La Manga before they won the league title and stuff like that. So it's a, I'm sure it's still prevalent if you get a a group of men together, shall we say, of a certain age and sort of drop them in a foreign country and sort of say, don't go out for a drink tonight. What are they going to do? And it seems go out like, for a drink if they got any sense. Absolutely, absolutely, and that comes across in spades in the book. So as we as we we move into shall we say the modern era, um, Don tried to sign various players. There, there was the, the the famous bid for Gary Lineker and Teddy Sheringham and various others, uh, and he could he couldn't didn't quite have the clout to bring them in. And, and Don eventually was let go. And we now have the Jack Walker money behind us. What was it like in that at the beginning of that season when there was there was this clear sense of underperformance we should be doing better there's money available how how was it in the dressing room when we didn't get off to that good start uh disappointing i personally felt a bit sorry for don like you say jack walker's money had come into the football club but the players wouldn't sign for him and i think that's one of the reasons why they let him go obviously kenny came in and players was lining up to sign for kenny dalgleish which you can understand i mean he was one of my heroes when I was growing up. I used to love watching Kenny Dalglish play football. And um, especially with all that money about, players was coming left, right and centre. And we went from a very close-knit squad, small squad, into a big squad. Still, everybody got on with each other, but it, there's not tension in the dressing rooms, but you could tell that it was getting different. We're getting more players in. It's going to be tougher to get a place in the first team. You're not going to get selected week in, week out. Kenny had his ideas. You're used to think he's bringing players in. They're going to be playing. They're going to be on the team sheet, which didn't always happen with Kenny. I mean, um, but he's he had his own way of doing it. And in the end, it brought success to the football club. So you can't argue with it at all. But that, that day against Plymouth, not the first time that we played Plymouth and won 5-2, you scored two goals. Yeah. You must have thought, ah, that, that, that's a good impression on the new boss. And then what that's happened what the I following thought. week? <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, I, I, that's my first thought after the game. When I was having my first beer, as usual, after the game, <laughs> um, it was, I've scored two goals. I'll be in the side next week. I must be in the side. And Kenny was one of these who didn't name his team until quarter to two on the day of the match. So I was sat there just casually just waiting for him to name the rest of the team and my name being on the team sheet. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It, that, that was a shock to me. I mean, before that, I'd been scoring goals, thinking I'd be in the team the week after, expecting to be, because we didn't have a big squad. And even to start with at Kenny's start, he didn't have a massive squad. So I thought I must be all right for the next game. But um, quarter two, I walked in, he read the team out and that was it. I wasn't in the team, so uh, I left the dressing room and he came out and he had a chat with me. Didn't really explain why he was leaving me out. He just said, 
you're not playing. And that was it. And so you knew there and then that he was ruthless. He was a ruthless man. Good manager, don't get me wrong. A very, very good manager. Yeah. And I think you need to be ruthless. That's Besides all the money, besides being Kenny Dalgleish, him and Don McCarr was completely different. Don wasn't firm. Kenny came in. When he spoke, you listened to him. And if you wasn't playing, you wouldn't argue with him. Yeah. He'd always have a, a reason why he wasn't playing you. Whether you believed it or not, it didn't matter. That's his reason. You're not going to change his mind. And that's why he was good at his job. And what was Ray Harford like? How did the dynamic work between the two of them? Ray Harford was brilliant. He did all the coaching. Kenny was the manager. Kenny was the man, the manager, picked the team. Ray Harford did all the coaching. And he's a very, very good coach. Uh, I know he came from Wimbledon, and they always talk about Wimbledon, long ball football and all this, but no, Ray Harford was a very, very good coach. I think we only ever once was playing away against Charlton Athletic when they were sharing at West Ham United's ground. And um, we trained all week to play the way that Wimbledon did. Instead of playing football, he was going to play the way Wimbledon did. And even that, we was trained, we practised it all week. It wasn't just kick the ball long. It was right. If you get a goal kick, ten of your play, nine of your players are going to be on the left-hand side of the pitch and one on the other side. And you kick it towards the nine players and the one on the other side just had to get into the box. And hopefully the ball had come in and you'd be in there to score. So it wasn't just kick it anywhere on the park. There was a method behind it, even the long ball game. But Ray was a lot better coach than what people thought. Oh, he's coming from Wimbledon. Yeah. Long ball man, and he wasn't. He was a very, very good coach. He got on well with the players. He spoke his mind. He was very harsh with you, very critical. But he improved your game. He was a very good coach. Uh, yeah, I think the, the two of them, as you say, complemented each other really, really well. And obviously it culminated uh, in, in winning promotion that season. So you were at the playoff final. You had one of those suits. I have one of them Have suits. you still got your suit? Unfortunately, no. Um, I think I threw it out last year. No. <laughs> it's probably worth a fortune grew... on, a, on eBay. Yeah, yeah, I think I grew out of it last year. No, it didn't. It didn't last long after that, let's put it like that. In fact, I think um, after that game, the amount of drink and whatever was spilt on it, I don't think it would ever have come clean again anyway. Probably highly flammable as well, depending on what you spilled on it and all the rest of it. So so there's the amazing high of the club winning promotion, but you weren't in the match day squad. You, you must have felt your cards were marked. How, how, did, how did the close season unfurl and how tempted were you to try and hang on just to move, just to make an appearance at some point in the Premier League um, tempted but the more I was tempted to hang on definitely but then all of a sudden he just kept signing strikers <laughs> I think there was three or four strikers came through the door way to drop a hint yeah yeah it was a way in a way it was a way to drop it and the more strikers came in I'm thinking I've got no chance here I'm not going to get in the side and that's when I made my mind I've got to move. If I want to keep playing football, first team football, I've got to move on. I had a meeting with Kenny. He was straight up. He was honest with me. As long as I moved out of the way so he could see the goal from the telly behind me. But uh, <laughs> no, he's great. He was straight, like he always was. He was straight, down to earth, said it as it was. He said to me, I'll tell you now, you're not going to get a game. I'll involve you in the squad. You might be on the bench now and again, but not very often. So he was honest. Fair enough, he was honest with me. And that's when I knew then I had to leave the club. And how many how many clubs were expressed an interest in you? How did the West Bromwich connection come about? Ozzy Ardealis. Right. From when he was on loan at Blackburn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was the only club that came in. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty forthright and honest of you, if I may say so. Yeah, was, yeah, no. Real Madrid clearly weren't aware of your uh, your availability. As soon as I knew that Ozzy wanted me, I was signing for him straight away. I mean, I knew the fellow. I trained with him. I knew his lifestyle. It suited me down to the ground, 40 fags a day. 
He likes a little tipple and stuff like thing, that. So he was great. It absolutely brilliant it was. And I went to meet him. We had a good chat. Explained how he wanted to play football, which was great for strikers. I mean, his motto was, if the opposition scored two, we'll score three. And that's why he played, and that's why his football teams played it. In a way, it was like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. After most of my career working with tactics, if you know what I mean. Aussie yeah, yeah. didn't really have tactics. It was just go out there, enjoy yourself and play football. Play off the cuff. Yeah, it was really, yeah. And how weird was it in that pre-season friendly when West Brom were playing Rovers and the, there was a guy in the Rovers number nine shirt who cost three and a half million and there was a guy in a West Bromwich Albion shirt who didn't cost three yeah. and a half million, shall we say. How, how no, weird was it now playing against Rovers? I think I was £3.50, mate. <laughs> a lot of money in them days. <laughs> no, um, it was a strange experience, I must admit. Coming out and playing against the side that I played for all my career, scoring was great. It was like saying, "There you go, Kenny. That's what you're going to be missing." But unfortunately, somebody, somebody in a number nine shirt scored two. I think he was. So he could turn around and say, "Well, he scored two. You only got one," and that was it. But it, I enjoyed the game. I must admit, I did enjoy yeah. the game. Strange playing against Blackburn, but yeah. it was like, it, in a way, it was like playing in a training game when you just play between yourselves, 11 aside, That's how I felt it. But um, to get off the mark for West Brom in that friendly was good for me because he got the crowd behind me. Four thousand holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. It's from a Beatles song. Give it a listen. Let's do some myth busting. Because there, there are two myths that follow you around and will continue to follow you around, even though you bust them in the book. So let, let, let's have a go. We'll, we'll see what's what. So how, be revealed. <laughs> how many times did you wear a shirt, a Rover shirt, underneath the shirt of the club that you played for? Was it A, never. one, B, never? <laughs> never. No, it's, I never did. It's a shame because it's a terrific anecdote, and I'm sure that I was. And I mean, I th- it's in the book before the chairman at West Brom called me in the office before we played Burnley at West Brom at the Hawthorns, and he warned me not to celebrate in front of the Burnley fans if we score. <laughs> if I score, well, I think it's about my first or second touch of the game in front of the Burnley fans and I score, <laughs> and that's where the rumour started that I had the shirt on underneath the West Brom shirt, which. I wish I had done that. I was going to say. I wish I had the, had the idea myself of putting that shirt on underneath there because West Brom was blue and white as well. I'd have got away with it, but just to lift it up and show them Burnley fans would have been great. As they say, print, print the legend. Yeah, print the legend. Absolutely. And the second one, of course, involves light aircraft. Uh, and uh, you know, I think the, the rumours range from you personally fundraising to almost, I think, piloting the plane, I think, at one point. Again, would you like to, would you like to dispel the myth? I'll dispel the myth completely. Another one I, I wouldn't say wish I thought of, but uh, <laughs> whoever organised it, let's say, I thought it was a really good idea at the time. But no, I had nothing to do with it. Well, the, the full story is in the book, uh, along with, with many, many other stories, uh, which I think is, is well worth it. Uh, let, let's, let's, let's close your career then. You, you you left Rovers to go to West Brom, but that certainly wasn't the end of your playing days. You, know, you, you, you had time at Wickham and played for yeah. Martin O'Neill, amongst others. Uh, what was Martin O'Neill like? Because he always strikes me as being one of those inspirational managers. Is he, is he... he was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant manager. Um Truthfully, to pick between Bobby Saxton and Martin O'Neill as the best two managers I played for, is hard to split them. Martin had a completely different way to Bobby Saxton. Um, he's a bit like Aussie, go out and score four, the opposition will get three or whatever. Could tell you off when he wanted to. We could play a game at a weekend and win 4 0 on a Saturday. He could bring us in training on a Sunday. The week after or whenever we could lose a game on a Saturday, 2 or 3 nil, and he'd turn around and say to the players, don't come in until next Thursday for training. And I suppose he's got that off Brian Clough who he played yeah, on the Forest. Yeah, I was just wondering. But, uh, no, Martin still speaks to him rarely, but now and again, uh, he's a great fellow, he's a great manager. But trying to sign for Wickham was really tough. I mean, I was having a bad time at West Brom, 
Ozzy had gone. Keith Birkinshaw took over. Uh, didn't want me in the place. Martin wanted to sign me. I thought I'd be gone in about three or four days, and I, I think it turned into about three months by the time I finished up signing at Wickham. He, he was that sort of fellow Martin was, but he was an absolute brilliant manager. Yeah. And you you drifted down into non-league, and I think well, according to the record books, you were still playing, if if not on your fortieth birthday, pretty pretty adjacent to it at a reasonable standard. Uh, how how difficult was it to finally hang up the boots, or do you still turn <laughs> five sides today? No, I, I I packed in five side about a couple of years ago, whatever it was. The knees wouldn't take it anymore. I mean, I was very lucky in my career. I didn't get a lot of injuries, serious injuries. So I was very lucky, but um, when you've got to get up for work in the morning, it's not as easy. Yeah, yeah. And even at the weekends, the travelling bits and stuff like that, um, it just takes it. It took its toll, and I wanted to carry on. Don't believe me; I'd have kept playing now if I still could. Yeah. But I just I played one. I was, I think it was the last team, part time team I played for was Flatwell Heath. We played a game, it was a boggy pitch, it was an awful pitch. I know I didn't used to do a lot of winning when I played bloody professional, but um, non-league, it was even worse at my age. I had young kids running around for me. And after the game, I was in the bar and I just had a chat with the manager. And I said, look, I said, that's it now, I've finished, I can't do it anymore. And I just made a decision like that, snap decision, didn't regret it. Getting up for work felt a lot better. Yeah. Still played five aside on a Thursday night for quite a few years after that. But even a Friday morning, it was tough. It was really tough. I mean, when I used to play professional, I could play a game of football, a midweek game of football, go in the bar, have a drink, and have a day off the day after. Even five aside on a Thursday night, you go to the pub after that. Getting up Friday morning, going to work used to be a right chore. Yes, I have fallen in sick a few times. <laughs> Different kettle of fish. So let, let's ask the uh, the cliche questions then. Uh, your favourite strike partner? Sue Regis. Towards the end, Mike Newell to start with. Brilliant to work with. I mean, if I go th- through all my career, Chris Thompson at Blackburn, really good. Mike Newell, different class. He worked his socks off for you. And then uh, Sue Regis at Wickham. I mean, he was an idol. Not a mine, but he was a, an idol in the football world. And um, he was older than me. That's what I was happy about. <laughs> you were the young protege that he could take under his wing. Uh, most difficult opponent? Uh, I didn't play against him that often, but Alan Hansen I played against a couple of times. He was one of the toughest ones. He used to play Chelsea quite a bit. And they had Mickey Joy at the back, who's yeah. about six foot 14 or something. I could <laughs> run in between his legs and get through him, but God, he could kick you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he was a tough one. A lad called Billy Gilbert. There was two of them. Billy Gilbert and Noel Blake used to be the centre-backs at Portsmouth. At Portsmouth. All that trouble we used to have against Portsmouth oh, and all some, that. There were some great games against Portsmouth, weren't they? Oh, there? I know, yeah. But them two, oh, they kick lumps out of you. But you kick them back. The thing about it is you kick them back. And as soon as the game's finished, you shake hands and run over beer with them after. And... Just get on with it. It's a game of football for 90 minutes. Yeah. You know what to expect. Whoever you're playing against, you know what to expect. You know if you're going to play against Billy Gilbert and Noel Blake, you're going to get kicked all over the place. And if if you're a young lad and you let them kick you all over the place, you forget about the game and it, you just get too scared and stuff like that. And I, would, from day one, I was never like that. If somebody yeah. wanted to kick me, I'd just say, right, get on with it and kick me, but I'm going to kick you back. And uh, that's what I did. Well, I need to say thank you to you now because you are responsible for one of my greatest Rovers uh, supporting days. Um, I think it was 1985. Rovers away at Portsmouth, 2-1 down. And I'd gone with my best mate from university who's a Portsmouth fan and he'd got tickets in the Portsmouth end. And I said, look, keep it quiet. But when Portsmouth went in front... Uh, he, he let it be known that he, his mate here was a Blackburn fan and there was a bit of banter, shall we say, at half-time. And then you, you t- turned the game round in the second half and won 4-2. 
Scored a hat trick, didn't it? You absolutely did, and it was well. It was uh, getting out of that ground was my sole objective at full time. It's kind of like, <laughs> how am I going to get out of here in one piece? Because the word had gone round at half time. But I have to say that the journey back after that game was fantastic, and I never mentioned it to him again ever since. <laughs> oh, so, I bet you haven't. <laughs> so, so thank you very much for that. If nothing else, so um, no problem. Richard, uh, the book, how do people get it? Because uh, Christmas is on the horizon. Uh, can, can people order this as a Christmas present? Yeah, we're going to be on sale, I think, from tomorrow. Um, well, I say on sale, on pre-sale. So we'll be taking your orders now. Deliveries in um, December. Um, and you can do that exclusively, ladies and gentlemen, before Christmas at Simon Garner Book dot co dot uk splendid i will put that link in the show notes so that people can do it and obviously we'll uh, we'll retweet it as well um through our, our social media channels ian can i just 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 another thing yeah sure um as you were talking there there's so many of the names that that you that you mentioned uh, i just want to give a big up to to dan here because just the just the ones you mentioned uh bobby saxton uh john blackwell Derek Fazakali. Uh, Don Mackay, Mike Newell, Ozzy Ardiles, Kendall Gleish, Martin O'Neill. Dan's interviewed all of them for this book, and that's that's one for me. That that was the reason why we should go back to it was because we wanted to hear the story from a different side. And do you know what? I've never asked. Can I, Ian? Do you mind if I ask Dan a question? No, I've not at all. Dan, what, what was it like speaking to those absolute gods? Football? <laughs> Well, it, yeah, it was. Uh, it was inter- I mean, Martin O'Neill was the one for me because I mean, what a, what a, a huge name, and everybody said that I wouldn't get in touch with him, and then he, and then he rang me back. So, and he, and he, and it's funny because he's obviously like super famous, but he was really nice, <laughs> and he, and he, uh, he really likes you, Simon, which was good. <laughs> but as I said to you, Richard, Martin was funny because what we did was. I'd, I'd, I'd ring them up, have a chat, uh, and then I'd write up the notes after, and then I would send it to them because obviously we can't publish anything without them being happy with it. With, but with with Martin, I sent it to him, and he'd obviously sort of read it back and thought, "Oh, I think I'd like to change it a bit." And then he hand wrote his his entire contribution. He hand wrote and then WhatsApp me photographs of his handwritten. Wow! So what he what he, what's in the book from Martin O'Neill? He actually hand wrote and then what's that picture to me? And, and I didn't dare edit a single word of him. Yeah. <laughs> he's, oh, a, he's, an, he's an amazing character, though, isn't he? Because he, he used mm. to go to trials, didn't he, in the court and all the rest of it, and what uh, watch court cases. And I think I think at one point he was thinking about being a lawyer or something like that, which doesn't surprise me, given his. his I know there's, there's a story about Martin. He he, he was on holiday in Florida, I think it was, with his wife. Who was heavily pregnant, and he knew he knew a judge or something at the Old Bailey who had a big serial killer case coming up, and he got in touch with Martin in Florida, and Martin cut his holiday short and brought his wife back, who was <laughs> six or seven months pregnant, and she had to go to the court with him every day to listen to this case. I'm glad <laughs> yeah. I've not made that up. Put that in the book. But, I mean, there, I mean, there's something. It's funny, isn't it? Because as a, as a football fan, you, you put footballers get put on a pedestal, don't they? And people are sort of frightened of them. They get a celebrity status, and then when you actually speak to them, they are as Simon is, you know, he's, 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 in in Rovers history, he's a huge name, but he's just an ordinary bloke <laughs> and a pretty nice one at that. Absolutely, and um, and it's the same with all, like, Ozzy Ardiles, um managed to get all of him and. He's a World Cup winner, for God's sake. Yeah. He was in Escape to Victory with Slice the Lawn. <laughs> and I'm just ringing him on his house phone and he's chatting away and he was a really, really pleasant guy. And I have to say, I, mean, I don't know if you've had him on here, but Mick Rathbone's an absolute hero, isn't he? He's such a funny man to speak to. Yeah, he's, he's the funniest man I've ever played football with. Yeah, his just, books are just extraordinary. His social media channels are, are, are full of stuff. He's... Uh, yeah, he's, he's on my hit list to, to get on the pod, I have to say. We, we definitely need to get him on. Gentlemen, I'm conscious that we, we, we've taken an awful lot of time. I could talk well, for hours, hours 
and hours and <laughs> hours. And yeah, when you do the third edition, uh, by all means, you're welcome to come back and all the rest of it, or a reprint. What I'm going to do is I'm going to finish. There is, there is only one Blackburn Rovers historian, Mike Jackman, that we need to reference. And earlier today, I just thought, oh, let's just have a look and see what Mike says about uh, Simon. Simon, not surprisingly, is in Mike's 50 Greatest Players to uh, to play for Rovers. I just, just this extract here, I think. The record books show that on the 15th of April 1989, the second of Simon Garner's three goals against Manchester City broke Tommy Briggs's aggregate record of 140 league goals. It's played towards Garner and he's still got it away from Taggart. A great moment for a great servant of Blackburn Rovers Football Club. He's rewritten the history books. The salutes are for Simon Garner. Garner kept going and belted it past Cooper. 3-0. However, what the record books don't reflect is that he was a player who enjoyed mixing with the people who paid to watch him play football and this endeared him to the supporters. And you're still doing it now, and for that I am eternally grateful. I wish you all the very best with the book. Once again, simongarnerbook.co.uk. Get in there and order it now. The perfect Christmas present for all your Rovers, Wickham, West Brom, Walton and Hersham, whatever it might be, supporting friends. Burnley, Burnley. Yeah, 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 absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) How could I overlook our nearest and dearest? Uh, It's a a terrific read. There are lots of interviews in there, as as, as Richard's just alluded to. Dan's done a terrific job pulling it all all together. Um, you You won't regret buying it by all means. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. Dan... Uh, for for bringing this to the table, I guess uh, we, we should say thank you, but thank you for joining us tonight. Richard, for publishing it uh, again, thank you ever so much for joining us tonight. And last, but by no means least, the Rovers legend himself, the record league goal scorer, Simon Garner. Simon, thank you. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Ian. Garner. Oh, that's brilliant. Display. Simon, you've got the match ball all autographed already. That must be a very special souvenir for you. It was today, but wasn't too bothered about getting the match ball. It was just after the second goal today. Because that was the one that broke the record. You've been waiting for a long time. You've been here a long time. I have, yes. I think it's 12 years now. I've been waiting about six or seven weeks now to score two goals and I thought I'd dry it up, but to get the second one today was something special. Can you uh, put into words your feeling for Blackburn Rovers over the time you've spent here? Yes, I've enjoyed every minute I've been here. Like, it's 12 years now, like I said, and I've enjoyed every minute. I've always been happy at the club. And I'm quite happy to go and play for them. There must have been times when you wondered whether First Division clubs would come for you with your goal record. I wondered a few years ago, but I was just happy to keep scoring goals and playing for the club. If someone's going to come for you, they'll come and buy you. So I was just quite happy to keep playing for Blackburn. Well, now you're in the record books and we can show you the goal that actually broke the record. You're second today yes. and the Rovers third. So I remember the ball went across to Elwood and he tried to play it across to me, but he, he knocked it a bit too far, but I just nipped in and pitched it, pinched it off the fullback. Just whacked it with the outside of me, boots into the far post. I enjoyed that one. Because <laughs> you thought you'd scored earlier in the half, hadn't you? You'd peeled away, but our replay showed that it didn't really cross the line. I knew it hadn't crossed the line as well. <laughs> no, I just turned away. I didn't think it had crossed the line, but you have to appeal. You never know. Sometimes the referee gives it. And then you were on a hat-trick, of course. Yes, I was, yes. It's a long time since I've got one of them as well. I think Mark played it in, and as he played it to me, I just looked up and the defence started to run out, I think it was. So I just thought I'd turn it straight away. They all tried to tighten me down. That was it, yes. I just turned them well there. That was a good turn. Long time since I've done that, now. Oh, I hit it well. Just enough for the post. Is it going? Uh, is it just on sale online, or is the club shop going to carry any copies or anything like that? The, the intention Ian, is to do it online only until Christmas, and then after Christmas, um, I haven't told Simon this bit yet, um, is to do. <laughs> 
maybe a little bit of get Simon up, up north. Um, that, so that's why. That's why I was asking if you're going to do like an evening with because I know we did yeah. um, we did something with Matt Janssen for his. So we literally yeah. interviewed him an hour before he went. Into- Okay. Recording stopped. Thanks a lot, Toronto. See you later. Sports Social Podcast Network.